Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about empathy. Lisa, I thought it would be interesting to talk through empathy since we discussed contempt in our last recording and kind of touched on empathy as a potential antidote to contempt. So I thought we should start there. Like, in what ways do you think empathy is an important emotion for people? And in what ways do you think that people feel empathy? Yeah, I mean, I think empathy is really important uh, for individuals, but also for community building. And I think it's the case because empathy is really about suffering and understanding suffering. And I'm definitely one who thinks that suffering is pretty permanent part of the human condition and we're constantly struggling against it. And I think, you know, when I get frustrated with humans, I'm like, they're just trying to not suffer, you know, even if they're choosing shitty means. So I think that empathy in its best form helps us identify our own suffering and, the, and what makes us suffer, why we choose to suffer, who we choose to suffer, but also how suffering is produced by structures, right? So racism and poverty and globalism and capital, you know, those are all things that produce massive suffering. And I think that the culture gets stronger as we have a better sensibility about what is producing the suffering around us or inside of us. What do you think about that? I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge suffering. And I think a lot of the emotional range of Americans kind of, there's like this puritanical sensibility where suffering is ignored or like is something that is a given that you have to work through and it makes you stronger. Um, but I do think it's a shared experience that most of us have. And obviously people suffer in different ways and people suffer to greater lengths, but like, it's something that we have in common and that I feel like should be talked about more. So for me, empathy is really important, but I just don't think we do it in the right way. I feel like empathy is really generalized and people make generic assumptions about what kind of suffering there is and what kind of suffering they're willing to acknowledge um, and don't really go to great lengths to really understand what other people are going through um, if it's inconvenient or difficult. I think empathy is like a muscle. You have to practice it. And it includes a lot of different skill sets. So when I think about empathy, I think about care, certainly, which we've talked about many times in this podcast. And I think about labor, certainly. Empathy includes labor. I think about labor, particularly labor that's anticipatory. What will this person need, you know, in the future? What will this turn into if I don't X, Y, or Z, right? It's not just diagnosing things that have happened to cause suffering, it's also about what does it look like to ameliorate suffering? Because I think you're right. I think, you know, one of the things that thinking about suffering, especially as a giant lit review of the earth does, is it can create a kind of fatalism about suffering. And I don't think that that's necessarily bad, but I can see how it can be difficult. Um, 
because obviously people use that as a way to to you know manage their feelings about hope particularly political hope but i think that empathy comes with a wide range of skill sets and i think people who are good at producing empathy and harnessing empathy are good at capacity building and i think you're right that americans have a narrow range of affect we talk about that a lot and that means that they can't actually build capacity not just because they don't have the language for empathy or the tools to build it but also because they're struggling under such tight regimes of capital they fucking do not have the time you know like they do not have the time to do it and the culture would be better better off if they did have more space to think about empathy and practice it and grow that muscle. I mean, real true empathy is complicated. It does require a lot of work. Like, yeah. if you really do want to see something from someone else's perspective, that requires research, that requires listening, um, and it requires, like, time and attention. So it's not really a button that you can turn on and off, which means that... I don't think we can rely on empathy like as an imperative or as like the central aspect of our morality because it's not something that I think we can reproduce easily. Um, and I, I think it's something, you know, that I think we rely on too much. It's like relying on tipping as compensation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we were just trust enough, right? people to be empathetic, uh, we trust employers to pay to pay fair wages. We trust employers to treat employees fairly and to provide them with a safe work environment. There are some obviously laws and regulations, but there's a lot of stuff that we leave up to empathy, um, and I I don't think that it's enough. I think we rely too much on it when we need guarantee <laughs> something that's guaranteed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things I'm, we're watching this like Biden build back better thing happen, and you know, pundits are are critical of certainly the obstructionism of members of the Senate. But I will say, on the whole, it is a fucking guarantee to provide structures that can capacity build empathy. Without a doubt, it is that. And it has a ton of other pitfalls, and of course it's not going to go far enough, and blah, blah, blah. All that shit is true, too. At the end of the day, the child care, the corporate taxes together, just as just two tiny pieces of a much larger thing, are absolutely about securing space to be able to do this kind of work. But, you know, at an interpersonal level, I feel like, and so that, but that stuff about the Biden is and the Build Back Better is really about empathy as decision making. Okay, we don't do that. We don't think about empathy as part of decision making. We don't think about empathy in terms of budgets, which you know I harp on all the time. Budgets are moral documents. We don't think about how money produces the conditions to ameliorate suffering, even like inter organizationally or whatever. But as a matter of interpersonal things. I think people who are successfully empathetic, that is people who are not overwhelmed by their empathy and their inability to manage their feelings about suffering, their own or others, but productive empathy that can transform things is very much about mind mapping. It's about who am I, what motivates me, what turns me on, what are my desires, what it revolt, you know, what do I find revolting, um, where is my contempt? What are my weaknesses? Um, you know, that 
And what about other people? What is their motivation? What makes them joyful? What do they fear? We do not talk about this. We don't talk about our own shit. We don't talk about other people's shit. It is not a cultural conversation, which is ironic, of course, because we're in this hyper-nationalist, like, white supremacist moment where it's all fear-mongering about people of color and white accountability and trans people all the time. It is all panic all the time. You know, it's weird. I mean, I think for the last several years, my biggest complaint, like, in my interpersonal relationships like whether it's with colleagues or even with friends is that I just wish that other people had more empathy like that is like one of my greatest desires and I know that it's there are a lot of different reasons for the deficit of empathy that I feel in my surroundings like a lot of people are just pressed that like you've mentioned they just don't have time there's just so often that I wish that people would see things from my perspective. But when I think about it more, when I think further into what that desire is, like, do I really need people to see things from my perspective? Or do I just need respect? You know, I I think about like, all of the other things that go hand in hand with empathy. We just don't have the capacity for empathy right now. And we need to build it. But where do we start? Like, I think we start with respect. I think we start with acknowledgement and I think we start with representation because if we can't have empathy for every person who crosses our paths like we have to start somewhere I think you know the unfinished project of the late 50s and 60s was introspection who am I why am I here right like what happens if I drop out of you know the silent generation's complicity with Nazism and fascism and empire. Hmm, let's, let's see what that feels like, right? And so the age of Aquarius was really about like consciousness raising. And that is the best part of the conversation about empathy as it pertains, in my opinion, to the 60s. Because it's like, okay, well, let's share our perspective. Let's narrate for the first time how we feel about stuff. And then let's do it in groups. And then let's think about that together with other groups, right? And so introspection is part of that process for capacity building, but is not the end all be all, right? That that does not get us to solidarity and it does not get us to repair. And I think the goal is both of those things. I think the transformative empathy produces solidarity. Like I can see how our lives intersect and why we can work together to ameliorate suffering for ourselves and others. And then repair, like how can we repair damages that are done? That has to be like the goal, I think, the like big structural goal of empathy. But what gets in, there's so many things that get in the way right now. It's burnout, right? Everybody's like, oh my God, the pandemic and also crushing capital and the erosion of social services and I mean, Trumpism is totally (laughs) exhausting, right, for anybody who's paying attention, but certainly for the people who are at the losing end of fascism. Though that is real, that's a real obstacle. But the other side of that is also just the constant paranoia 
that if you give an inch, somebody will take a mile and you'll lose more. And so the precarity and scarcity mentality is very much alive in the conversation about empathy. And it produces a durable paranoia about being vulnerable with other people, either about oneself or about themselves, that creates fear. And that is like no joke I think a lot of the dynamic that's happening around critical race theory and about education and about, you know, the 1619 project and really the dog whistles that we're seeing right now are without a doubt motivated by a crushing fear of vulnerability and accountability around suffering. Like, you know, the question of the 20th century really was can man condemn himself? And we are living that again, you know, can white people take responsibility for whores? Now, you know, that was Nuremberg and that was Auschwitz and that was Bergen-Belsen. And this is a much more complicated neoliberal regime of violence that's slow death and it's also fast genocide and it's climate change and a bunch of other stuff. So it makes sense that people can't tap into their empathy when they are crushed by capital and dog whistles and an inability to build the capacity to manage their own suffering, let alone that of others. I mean, I think that raises for me like two questions. One is who is deserving of empathy or maybe the right way to frame this question is how do people determine who they think deserves empathy? So, you know, what's weird, and I think this is also part of what we're seeing with the Democratic Party right now and trying to get these um, infrastructure bills passed, how much certain candidates feel like they have to appeal to swing voters. We saw this in the primaries. And I remember the issue of universal health care and how much candidates that needed to be perceived as moderate would appeal to people who were already insured uh, during conversations about universal health care there are a large swath of voters that are like i'm insured i'm good so why do i need to vote for universal health care like why do i support that at all like i'm good and that really raised the same question for me like what was driving that mentality that you would vote to protect your own interests when other people were suffering The second piece of that is that there's this moment in the political environment where we're confronted with this question of how do we respect people who don't respect our rights? And I know that's a a question for a lot of Black voters. Like, how do we grapple with the fact that there's a portion of the electorate that doesn't care about our history or what happened or doesn't want to acknowledge that how do we respect um, in a public health crisis people who refuse to cooperate people who refuse to get vaccinated people who refuse to wear masks like how do you have empathy in situations like that how do you start with respect when there's people with diverging interests and interests that actually work against your well-being I guess for me, I don't see that as an impossible scenario. Like, I think about Trump, and I was like, especially in the in the campaign, people ask me, well, how did he come to be this way? And I was like, do you hear him talking about his mom? He grew up in a fascist, horrific household. 
right? That was extremely punishing and sexist and racist. And he was made into that. It, it was, it took a lot of effort to shape him into the external monstrosity of capital and white masculinity. And also he had a bunch of agency in embracing it, right? So for me, I think it's really important to just be able to name the processes that created the thing, even if that, that's not going to mean that I'm not going to still, you know, shitpost about Trump. But I understand how he came to be that way. I think the problem is not understanding how the thing comes to be. Like, if you don't understand media ecologies, I don't think you really understand the, you know, vaccine skepticism. If you don't understand the propaganda of the Reagan administration to shit on public welfare, I don't think you understand why people don't have faith in the federal government. If you don't understand, you know, the desegregation crisis and, you know, states' rights and, you know, nullification, then you don't really understand what's happening in the states pushing back against federal vaccine mandates. So I guess the historian in me says you have to be able to name these multiple factors that are producing these kinds of contingencies that create tropes of different kinds of people, right? And then it's not so much about the individual, right? It is about an entire group of people who, you know, are formed in this ideological space. It's about, you know, the January 6th people as all being radicalized in this way. It's about propaganda. It's about social control. It's about access to capital. It's about redlining and segregation. It's about funding mechanisms. It's about controlling DC, statehood. It's about a lot of other things other than just the individual decisions that assholes that we know make all the time. So for me, I'm like, go you scale up to the structure and not down to the individual, even though I understand that that's a very hard thing to do. And I'm able to abstract that way, both because of my training and my whiteness. So I get that. And also, it's real hard to have respect for people if you don't understand what is shaping them 24-7, the relenting forces. I mean, that's, to me, the importance of allowing people a platform to tell their story. And I'm, Trump didn't need a platform, was give. There's so, no, so he many. Probably ma- needed empathy. <laughs> yeah, he is the product of an absolute vacuum of empathy around him at any point in his entire fucking life. He is the product of you know an airtight, closed circuit, hermetically sealed racism, nationalism, capitalism in a neoliberal culture. He's he's the absence, totally evacuated of empathy. I think there are a lot of white men like him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that and women, good God, so many. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm thinking about the ways that because Trump had such a public platform, because so many white men have a public platform, and we do feel empathy for them because we're able to understand their stories and see it, and it's so familiar. And so, like, that's an empathy that feels very possible for me, and, and one that I do feel. But, you know, what other kinds of stories, like, are we not, do we not have access to? How many people know about the Syrian refugees? You know, for example, there are so many stories that I feel like we 
don't have access to. And so that's, I think, why, you know, art and writing and podcasting, where people have a platform to share their stories um, on their terms, it's a really important way to cultivate more empathy for other groups of people instead of just your in-group. I think so too. I think it's the creating the opportunities for um, supported vulnerability that can really perform this task of building capacity for empathy. I think you're right that storytelling is uh, essential. I think it's a place where journalism is failing, like fucking failing. Corporate journalism, legacy media, just failing on the diversity of voices and perspectives and storytelling. And that is doing us a massive disservice, I think. It is not helping. Instead, it's like, you know, pity porn about a terrible situation that was overcome. It's about, you know, I don't know, charity as the ultimate, you know, idealized expression of empathy, which obviously I don't agree with. Um, for all the reasons you stated about having secure, guaranteed social services is a much better starting point rather than the whims of, and, uh, of you know, people who have money. So I think you're right about that. I do think that there are not enough stories or accessible stories to people. And part of it's public education. I mean, honestly, this entire fight right now about CRT, about critical race theory and about public, about education generally is really about whether or not there, there is going to be creative free space in classrooms to talk about hard things. And that also is not new. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a really old fight, but it is one that centers on whether or not, you know, teachers will be able to produce empathy in their classrooms around horrific conditions that white Americans have perpetuated at the expense of black people and other peoples of color, certainly indigenous peoples. And like that's an intentional move away from building productive empathy that leads to the transformative solidarity and, and reparative moves that I think we need. So I, I think what I, the point we're trying to get at is that empathy as a motivating force and as a political and social goal should be intersectional and you know the thing that stands out to me about it especially when we think about classrooms is I mean again it gets back to who is represented like I don't think relying on empathy is enough like we need representation like let people speak for themselves and don't try and tell other people's stories necessarily we see where that's gotten us with some of the way that public education has been shaped around hiding certain facts and histories and amplifying others but also disappearing whole groups of people like that doesn't happen until you let the black men out of prison i mean the fact that there are like so few black teachers or professors that are men in particular is horrific so i mean certainly in terms of my own research i think you know and the work that i do the absence and intentional disappearance of voices, right? Whether they're Palestinians or whether they're black men or whether they're, you know, indigenous people, certainly in the Americas. I mean, all of that is about creating a hegemonic voice of experience that inoculates certain groups from responsibility for the way that they have abused power. And I think that empathy 
both as an interpersonal thing and as a structural social thing, has to work at unraveling that, right? Compassion is not enough. We have to do the cognitive work to see how policymaking is actively undermining empathy and the production of empathetic capacity and how it is, you know, making empathy impossible by distorting power in ways that, you know, reproduce brutality and oppression and, you know, capital, capitalism. I think we assume too much, you know, just because you know someone has dealt with hardship or trauma or you're aware of certain injustices or circumstances doesn't mean that you know what it actually is to have experienced that. So to me, it's like empathy is a doorway, you know, to, <laughs> to just letting other people in and connection. building with them. Yeah, yes, connection. But I, you know, I will say that the age of Aquarius and the introspection of the late 50s and early 60s produced the self-help boom. And we have talked about self-help and its and self-care in that language as um, both a proto-feminist and anti-feminist practices, but one that's certainly white. And I think that this is not, that is not what we're talking about here. Empathy is not self-care. Empathy is not um, self-focused. It's other-focused. And the West is bad at that, except for otherizing people as enemies, right? Then we are good at uh, focusing on the other as demonizing the other. But in terms of thinking through other people's perspectives and experiences and desires and ethics, uh, we don't do that at all. And I just think about how few people watch, like, the BBC or that watch Al Jazeera, who have no idea that there's all this world out there reporting on them as the monsters. And what would that do to shift them if they saw all of these other cultures who are characterizing, you know, the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan as a horrific loss of life and as a fundamentally busted political goal? And what if they read about the U.S. invasion of Iraq either time right from other perspectives even the Iraqi perspective they don't know anything about that and it's not totally their fault right because it's being withheld from them intentionally that is you know it is difficult to get some of those things less so now with the internet but certainly even without you know rural broadband which most of the country does not have it's still harder so but I, I think you're right that moving past like this navel gazing self-care philosophy of understanding late capital and burnout has to move us into connection with other people in order to get to solidarity and repair. There is no other way. And that that necessitates vulnerability and honesty and responsibility. And those are not things that are cultivated. I mean, despite what the Christians broadly, capital the capital Christians will tell you about their ethics, they are not cultivating empathy for people who disagree with their perspectives, like as a large, massive, monolithic, giant block of humans, the empathy is not where their interests converge. I mean, we can't even get the minimum, right? No. <laughs> the minimum wage up. So to me, we're so far from empathy as anything other than, you know, a self-care or as co-opted as a moral imperative. Yeah, and I also think that there's a relationship between empathy and dignity, like the dignity of work, and like, I like the comment about, and we made it in the last, you know, recording too, about the minimum wage, 
like everyone deserves dignity, right? I mean, at a bare minimum. And you that, wouldn't know it. <laughs> you would not, not here. It is absolutely not the national ethic. Without a doubt, it is not. It is not, that we do not equate empathy with like, any kind of prestige like people who have empathy are not revered here at all and it's quite opposite it's very much brutalism good yeah empathy is seen as a as a weakness and it's weird how harmful it is even on like small scales like how much it creates trauma and distrust um but also that's because empathy also gets transformed into white saviorism, right? So because we don't have the good skills to be able to, right, identify what other people are thinking because those stories are not readily available to lots of us and they're not part of the way that we're educated in our families or in our schools or in our churches, then it becomes very difficult to make up that space, you know, as people get older and older and older. And they can't map other people. And so it becomes white saviorism is the only way to relate to people who are different than us or people who have experienced or are experiencing more suffering. And that is just so busted to me, that kind of paternalism and exceptionalism. But it's fundamental to the American identity. And it has to be undone, I think. It has to start, it has to start in the home. And it has to start in churches. And it has to start in schools. And those are the places of transformation for empathy, at least for me. It's not romantic relationships and it's not it's not friendship, even though those can be personally transforming. It has to be in the places where ideas are transmitted to large groups of people. And that's why, you know, fighting about the family or fighting about, you know, public education are constant places for the culture wars, really. It's bizarre to me that we use religion as a motivating force especially in politics so much and that we don't tie in the empathy that's a part of those religious narratives to that. So I think about the abortion debate and again, the question of who is deserving of empathy because there are so many circumstances that might cause women to request an abortion. There are so many different medical reasons that you might want an abortion. There's, there are mothers that have six children already. There's empathy is a really important way to understand abortion. And you would think that there there's like a Christian tent of forgiveness um, and compassion that just gets left out of that conversation. That's because the control is more important. The reproduction of the white family at all costs is what drives that as a pillar of capital and I mean until that's dislodged it will continue to move this way it just doesn't have to be this way though I mean I do think that people want more I think you know I've said this on previous recordings but one thing that the pandemic has for white people particularly it did especially in the first six months give them more time and they were forced to be introspective and to seek out new medias right now some of them got QAnon so that was bad but you know, some of them also found podcasts and they found, you know, a serial, you know, long form journalism. And they they found other outlets. They found fiction to really help broaden their ability. 
and they found curiosity. So I think there is not empathy without cur deep curiosity. And that is also not a thing that we want to cultivate because curious people become independent thinkers and then they become critical of structures and then they produce empathy and they want to tear down the structures that are unjust. So I think... And they don't want to work 60 hours a week. They do not. They do not. They want to come in and record just one episode of the podcast and then go get beers. 